Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the June 6, 2017 edition of Ask a Leader. On this program, it's an honor to have for the whole hour UCI law professor Michelle Goodwin to take us to places she's famous for taking folks, a deeper, more memorable level of racial politics and policy. We'll be right back after short station break. to the show. My guest for the entire hour is Michelle Goodwin, here to talk about institutions, monuments, protections, and the lack thereof as we examine women of color, men of color, you name it. She is UCI's Chancellor's Professor of Law and Commentator Extraordinaire. She also maintains appointments with the Program in Public Health, Department of Criminology, Law, and Society, Department of Gender and Sexuality Studies, and the Center for Psychology and Law. She's also the founder and director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy. Professor Goodwin's expertise and her new ways of thinking, which is in worldwide demand, spans bioethics, constitutional law, family law, human rights, medical law, reproductive rights, and torts. You can follow her timely and essential commentary in her Huffington Post blogs, LA Times, New York Times, Jean Watch, Christian Science Monitor, Politico, Cleveland Plain Dealer, Houston Chronicle, Chicago Sun-Times, Washington Post Alternate and Forms Magazine, or spend more time in her publications in the Harvard Law Review, California Law Review, Georgetown Law Review, and many more. I'm not going to mention them all, but you can... You can certainly find in a search. Prior to joining UCI, her appointments were at University of Minnesota, University of Chicago, UC Berkeley, and Columbia University Law Schools. She completed her BA in Sociology, Anthropology, African Languages, and Literature at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, her Juris Doctor, that's her law degree, at Boston College School of Law, and her LLM and Advanced Law Certification at the University of Wisconsin. She appeared on the show after she provided commentary over the Democratic National Convention last fall, which now seems like a whole generation ago. We'll examine the split screens privilege versus assault in our American society. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Professor Michelle Goodwin. Thank you so very much for having me, Claudia. It's, a, it's such an important program uh, that you have here, and it's my honor uh, to be on this show with you. So thank you very much. And wonderful. I mean, one could pay you for that just brilliant introduction. Um, you're far too gracious and kind. The honor is on us. And my goodness. Well, let's let's begin. New Orleans, Mitch Landrieu, the, their mayor, has had some very interesting, well, monologues and dialogues about the movement to bring down Civil War monuments. And I'd, I'd like to open our coverage of 
this whole identity politics unfolding in 2017 with this gesture, a fraught gesture for the mayor of New Orleans to undertake here in 2017. Well, that's right. And what's very interesting is that uh, it continues to be fraught in the United States. Now, one, I think it's very important that we always have discourse and dialogue. But what's very interesting is the way in which it is fraught. Um, There have been people with torches standing around these monuments, He's been harassed. Uh, There have been threats to the people in his office. And what he's made clear, and I think it's a very important point to make, and that is that there is a difference between remembrance and reverence. And as he notes, what's very interesting is that these were monuments that were not actually established during the antebellum period. Rather, many of these statutes across the country actually came during the period of Jim Crow, right? So it was an effort to reestablish domination and control. The way in which it's been framed today is that, oh, no, this is just about remembrance, but not necessarily. And if we are to unpack Jim Crow in the United States, and we really don't do it sufficiently for all of us because this is an American history, but if we were to, then we would really be shocked and horrified by the types of aggressions that were rarely policed. And so we're talking about thousands of lynchings. We're talking about the lynchings of women and little kids. We're talking about the celebration of those lynchings with bodies being desecrated and cut up and burned and tortured and with people having picnics, men, women, and children, celebrating. Now, we'd really have to unpack that level of a consciousness in our own country, which was just a blink away. So what the mayor in New Orleans has done is to say that, you know, what's really important for his community, and really flagged it for the rest of the country, is let's really put this in context and not just rest on this notion that it's just about an appreciation of the Confederacy, but instead, if we are to unpack more fully what that period represents, then we really have to be honest about the types of domestic terrorism in our country that was tolerated for so very long. And with that, I think it's really important to remember that we're not talking about centuries ago. If you were to go to the Civil Rights Institute Museum in Birmingham, Alabama, there is a timeline in that museum, which actually doesn't span, you know, the 1600s until the 2000s. It's actually just a brief period um, in the 1950s. They just take this slice of just a couple of years. And Claudia, yes, it would force anybody with a consciousness to say, oh, my goodness, how could we have tolerated so many churches being blown up in our country? How many homes being torched and set aflame? And these were individuals who were fighting for constitutional rights and liberties that we all appreciate. And so this timeline that's brief, it's only a couple of years. I mean, they could have, again done it by centuries, but no, it was to just give a slice that in a two-year period of time, there were dozens and dozens of Christian churches that were blown up in the South, and these were blown up by people who purport to be Christians. And in some of those instances, there were little children who were killed or severely maimed. Now, these are parts of our historical context and history um, that we just simply don't deliberate on. 
And we really need to. So this conversation that's been started in uh, Louisiana to think about these issues is really a conversation for our country. I, I'm really struck by when I first read, I think, about I, I, 15, 20 years ago, James Lowen did, uh, wrote the book up, Lies My Teacher Told Me, What Your American History Teacher Got Wrong. And he describes the erection of these monuments as a different way of declaring victory after a defeat in the Civil War. So it's sort of a, it, it, it's, as you say, it's a Jim Crow gesture to sort of re, sort of redefine what happened during the, the 1860s and prior. So it's, and, and I, I want for everybody to let sink in is at the time of these terrorizing gestures, these, uh, these assaults, it's it, it. We've got to really get our arms wrapped, or our minds wrapped around the kind of reverberation that people are assaulted by witnessing this, and the stories that are told through generations, and they are made afresh by new assaults. Well, you know what's what's unfortunate is that these these re- realities can be painful for everybody, right. right? And we see the pain unfold in different ways. For example. Uh, in New Orleans, the uh, men who stood around these statutes with their torches blaring, they would say that they're feeling a, a pain about their history. And then there could be African Americans and others, and white people too, who are feeling a pain about um, racial violence and right. who have a visceral uh, reaction and memory that is associated with Jim Crow. But I think that what's most challenging for us in the United States is that we have a, a, a weak foundation for understanding. And just as what you mentioned, you know, the, the, the lies that my teacher told me, that, or better yet, what my teacher didn't teach me. So what's a shame is that, and this is, this is true, that, that one could get a better history and education and understanding about the antebellum period in the United States and Jim Crow in European countries than you can by living in the United States. Oh, my goodness. How many children in the United States really have an understanding or an appreciation for what the slavery enterprise actually was in the United States? What did these ships look like? Children aren't taught that. They're not taught. They don't get the visual image that we were a country that tolerated people being stacked like sardines on top of each other by the dozens and hundreds and then being tossed overboard when they became too sick. Right? That level of cruelty then baked into these individuals coming to the United States and laboring in the fields. We kind of take it for granted. We say, oh, well, there was slavery. But we really fail to appreciate, well, that was our first investment in international trade. When we begin by saying, well, America first, you know, we're just going to take care of America first. Well, America has always been involved in trade. It's been involved in the trade of human flesh. Right. That trade in human flesh was what provided the foundation for an American economy. So what moves the United States ahead of other countries, the American enterprise of slavery that persists beyond European countries? European countries had to actually police waterways because internationally it was decided slavery really should be abolished. This is really quite terrible. And the United States continued to import slaves from um, the various coasts of Africa. So these are histories that are very important to understand. And it's not just 
for the purpose of could you circle in the right, you know, A or B on an exam. But they're also important to unpack for our own consciousness, right? Right. So we're in an era where there's a lot of talk about what is false fact. And it seems to me that there isn't sufficient interrogation about our earliest foundations about what we understood as reality. And that would be to say that for not weeks or months, but years and decades and centuries, there were Americans that allowed themselves to be convinced that little children and women were just chattel, and men too, so black men, women, children, we're no different than cows or pigs or dogs, right? I mean, it really takes um, diluting oneself to such an incredible degree to engage, again, not just for a day or a week or two. Can you imagine, right, that if in Irvine or pick a city, and suddenly right. <laughs> one started doing this and said, you know, no, we really don't have to worry about this. You know, don't worry about this because those people aren't human beings. Those people are something else. You know, when that sinks in and you allow that to sink in for that period of time, that is a significant delusion. So for so many of all of us, we need to really come to grips with that. And if we do, then we can then have a better understanding about how deeply terrorizing Jim Crow was for, again, all of us. And what I mean by all of us is that you know, typically when these conversations about race take place, people say, oh, that's really just a kind of fill-in-the-blank with the people of color problem. No. We really allow ourselves to be deluded in that way about human beings and human capacities, and that's a problem for all of us. I'm just wondering if when we talk about trying to fill in the blank with, with more vigor and intention, we could measure not in terms of decades, centuries, but we could call it generations. So it looks like families that are enduring these burdens. Absolutely. For one, the other point I was going to also want to bring up is that James Lewin is a sociologist and his primary research interests are about the sociology of publishing. And so uh, you could maybe argue, Michelle Goodwin, that the Jim Crow part two or 2.0 is what where there, there's a corner on the market for publishing these history texts in the, in the state of Texas, this further propagating these, this mythologized American history. Well, let's be clear. It's embarrassing. It's a shameful history. And um, what's very interesting, I think that Germany is a, is a very important model Yes. Um, because it wasn't immediately after World War II that Germany confronted its past. And what's very fascinating is that it actually took a, a young prosecutor and a senior prosecutor. The young prosecutor was approached by journalists about needing to really unpack the history of the Holocaust. This was about, you know, a decade or two after uh, the war. And what was very interesting is that this young attorney who was in his 20s said, what Holocaust? What are you talking about? And if it had not been then for a senior prosecutor to say, unpack it, let's find these people who committed these atrocities, let's bring them to trial. So it was very interesting that how very quickly Germany after World War II had forgotten exactly about why it was in World War II. I mean, and that is pretty darn amazing when you think about it, 
right? Holy. But what was fascinating then is that Germany then spent time, real time, unpacking what was experienced in that country. And by doing so, it then shaped laws. It then recognized uh, human rights in a very different kind of way. It held uh, the nation accountable, along with the individuals who had been involved in the enterprise, and has continued to do so. We, on the other hand, have never really done that in the United States. And Jim Crow is a perfect example. We need not go all the way back to slavery, although the importance of apologies and various other things associated with that is very important and not to be overlooked. But, but Jim Crow gives us something more immediate. Right. If you think about the case of Emmett Till, I think it, it yes. says a lot to this point. And that is the perpetrators of the brutal lynching and murder of Emmett Till, this 13-year-old boy who goes south for the summer to visit relatives, um, and then is, uh, is said to have whistled um, at a white woman in a candy store. That's the foundation. That's the justification for his murder. Well, Merriman Bryant, the men who murder him, um, admit to doing so in a magazine. Now, this is after they're acquitted in a very short trial um, that has an all-white male jury. Um, African-Americans are kept out. African-American reporters are kind of put to the side. Um, the local uh, sheriff is um, very hostile to black folk. It's this one very interesting example where the nation sees what happens, and then the nation doesn't blink that there are two men who then are interviewed by Look Magazine, and they say, yes, of course we did this. What would you expect? Of course we were supposed to do this. And over and over again, that kind of narrative has played out during, in the South mostly, in the United States. The bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church uh, in Alabama, uh, the death of Medgar. I mean, it's all like a laundry list of so many bombings and killings. Right. And with people not held to account. And that's just within the last half century or a little bit more. So I, I, so I think that there is something to be said about a nation that's willing to be accountable about these kinds of atrocities. And if we were, I think we'd have a different dialogue today about what constitutes a domestic threat. Well, for those of you who've just tuned in, you're listening to Ask Leader on KUCI. My guest is Michelle Goodwin. She's a UCI law professor and director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health. And she's talking about how we as Americans need to be held accountable for for the transgressions, the assaults over over generations uh, and until right up until most recent times. And so, and we're we're starting out in New Orleans with the monuments. Now, I wanted to know for those who say there's historic value to that. I, I understand what that's signaling. I understand that's code for some very retro and magical thinking and denials, et cetera, et cetera. But is there a a solution to to sort of defang that argument with maybe perhaps some kind of display in some sort of cultural, institutional setting? Well, you know, so, so it's very interesting is that there could be a spectrum, and on one end of the spectrum there are people that say, leave the monuments up. And right. on the other end of the 
far end of the spectrum, people say, get rid of them, they never should have been up. I think that there is a lot to be said about interrogating our past. Um, I think that there's a lot to be said about our understanding who these figures were, uh, what they fought for, what their ideologies were, and to understand them in their very complex ways. That's not been the history of these monuments. The no. history of the monuments has been a reverence to the individuals and what they stood for and as a symbol of what should come back again. But instead, I think it's really important to have an education around these um, symbols, right? I mean, you can right. have a whole park of them, right? I mean, and imagine if one were to have a park of the people who are meaningful to a period of time. And it need not be, then, the Confederacy Park, right? I mean, you think about the people of those times. Um, you know, what's fascinating is that there are a lot of people who are lost to history. For right. example, um, while Lincoln is uh, revered as the president who abolished slavery, I mean, he did, he was the author of the Emancipation Proclamation, but that has to be understood in context, too. Right. Because the Emancipation Proclamation was conditional. You could keep your slaves as long as you were willing to join the Union. So that document was not a writ large, slaves are free. It was, look, if you don't play along, your slaves, get to be, your, your slaves will be freed. But if you play along, you get to keep them. Many of the real heroes of that time were actually people called radical Republicans who were in our Congress. They're totally lost to history. Totally. Totally lost to history. And these folks, these Republicans, and this is an important point, these radical Republicans in our Congress so cared about our country, the integrity of our country, um, the legitimacy of our country, that they were the ones that sponsored the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, the 14th Amendment, which established equal protection under the law and due process. And they were the ones who then wrote the 15th Amendment, which provided the right to vote for African-American men. And so they're lost to history. Where are the monuments that recognize them? So, I mean, I think that having monuments that are in conversation with each other is very important, but, of course, we have to know that history and be able to unpack it for our generations, as you say. That's such an important observation. I really count on you for these, Professor Goodwin, because uh, it's totally lost and it's a it's a revelation, I must uh, admit. And so I guess we're. It seems like it could almost have assumed a stature since it entails a, a such a large comprises such a large proportion of our society that it it should be right there next to how the Declaration of Independence is revered. Well, those those you, amendments. Yeah, no, when you think about it, I mean, just imagine if there were a space where we weren't ideologically driven, but really driven about I'm a trying. common... <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but around a common purpose of a United States that we could all embrace ourselves around, that we could all appreciate the sacrifices that people from so many different communities made for our country to be what it is today, monuments that recognize indigenous populations and Native Americans who were so generous to the immigrants that came from Europe, and sadly so many lost their lives, then later to generations of Europeans. But, but imagine if we really had a space where young people could grow up and see all of that complication and be able to ponder with it 
um, that would be really um, quite profound. And in reality, we really need that because we need to be educated. We need an understanding of our roots and where they come from. And I mean, and by that, I'm talking about an American quilt, not one that's just simply racialized by a specific group, but really the broader American family. Well, I think my target's going to be for many other generations still living to, to, for that kind of education process, because I, I see the herd as really v- venally reinforcing this identity politics and uh, really hunkering into the them and us kind of political divide. And so I, I, I'm just thinking, just in a public service announcement and beyond an aggressive kind of self-examination, intergenerational examination about this. This It's really, it's really amazing. Well, so what organizations that track hate crimes have uh, been documenting yes. in recent weeks and right. months is that there's been a uh, rise, a dramatic rise uh, in hate crimes in the United States. Now, there are some that we see, such as in Portland. It's a tragedy of the young men who were murdered in coming to the defense of two women who were being accosted by someone. So there's two sets of victims in there, the ones that were threatened by the the rider on the max, and then there were those that were killed by that rider on the max. So Absolutely. I, we have two, sec, two, two groups here that were assaulted. That's right. And, with, you know, it, it's important to note that you know, in that way, that's what we see, but there are crimes, these hate crimes, these sort of, or the hate-motivated instances that we don't see. The threats that are being made to uh, churches uh, and to synagogues and to mosques in our country, um, threats at schools, threats to families. Um, much attention was given to LeBron James and what happened at his home in Los Angeles, and Probably lots of that has to do with the fact that he's a celebrity, and that was good that that attention was raised. But what's being overlooked are the people who are average Americans who are suffering through this. Um, And so it really is important to take account as to what's motivating this. Why is it occurring? One of the more obvious reasons is that, you know, there is a fear, just like with these monuments, this fear that something is going to change the fear of losing a particular thing. And we'd have to ask ourselves, for the people who are involved in making these calls, who have the hateful Facebook pages, the people who say that they don't want Jewish people in our country or black people or Muslim people, what are they really saying? And what's interesting is that our country wouldn't be what it is. They wouldn't have the privileges that they have if it were not for this very diverse blanket or quilt of Americans who helped to build this country. So what's very interesting is that this kind of privilege speak that people talk about, right. you know, that, you know, I want this America that looks like this. Well, we've never had an America that looks like that. Our America that we have, we have to acknowledge it wouldn't be here if it weren't for the institution of slavery. No. So we have right. always relied on people from abroad to help make America great. Those who came under uh, forcefully, and those who've come from the South, to 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 do all the jobs that the predominant culture is perhaps not willing or able to do. So, uh, but I want to go back to 
the the attack in Portland that there the symbolic and the legal aspects here is the symbolic way of being of it being dealt with is the White House in uh, was an omission. It, there was no real response for many days uh, to acknowledge those victims. And then I'd like to know then the legal aspect is the whether and how a domestic violence designation can stick to this crime. Because this this is the department, I wanted to be able to cover up Jeff Sessions' Department of Justice, and they, they get to make the call. What's considered a domestic, a case of domestic violence versus uh, a hate crime? Right. So... So, so your your question more broadly is about how cases such as what we saw in Portland, whether or not they will be pursued um, as hate crimes. The case will be prosecuted. So it's important for your listeners to know that uh, the crime that happened there, there's a local prosecutor, there's an individual who's been arrested uh, and charged, and there will be a trial. But there can be added uh, penalties um, associated with a crime being uh, being charged as a hate-motivated crime. Uh, and a hate-motivated crime can be because of someone's identity. It can be because of race. It can be because of sexual orientation, religion, etc. Right. Okay. And so the question is, in this era of this rise of this um, venomous activity um, that's leading to individuals' deaths, whether or not this Justice de- Department will utilize those added tools. It's important to think about why those added tools exist. I mean, in part, the existence of those tools is really to signal our nation's intolerance for that type of behavior Mm -hmm. because we are a nation that would like to see itself as bounded together and strengthened by being bounded together and so we want to not tolerate that type of um, venomous hate at the same time we want to discourage it as well to send a very clear signal that those types of crimes will be taken seriously and it's in direct response and reaction to the Jim Crow crimes that simply either were not prosecuted or where um, where juries were stacked and individuals were um, allowed to walk yes. exactly so so we, we shall see in this Justice Department you know um, Attorney General uh, Jeff Sessions has signaled a number of things that we should be concerned about. Uh, we should be concerned about his history with regard to voting rights. Yes. Uh, we should also be considered about. Uh, we should also um, consider quite strongly what he's advocated for, which is a return to the drug, the type of drug sentencing uh, and prosecuting that we saw during the height of the drug war, uh, which has been a failed war. And we, of course, should also be concerned about the very issue that you raised, which is will this Justice Department take seriously hate crimes like we saw in Portland? Well, and he, he's, this is the mandatory minimums that not only filled the all of the penal institutions, but it also starved a, a demographic of, of of voters i'm thinking of just household members That's breadwinners members that keep a family you know intact a family thriving i mean it, it just kicked all the the legs out from under the the chair and the table so it's that mandatory minimum is where we're headed i i don't know how 
Professor Goodwin, how you can uh, get through a get through a <laughs> night knowing that Jeff Sessions is signaling a lot of seriously dangerous stuff. So I'm so Claudia, I'm so happy that you raised that because I find it really important to say the following when the issue of crime and drugs come up. Oftentimes people say, well, look, the police just go to where the crime is. And then the second part of that is that, well, look, the crime is just happening with regard to drugs in the black and Latino communities, and police are just doing their jobs. So here's what I find is really important to say, okay. which is this, that police are not necessarily going to where the drug crimes are happening. For example, if one wanted to find where the drug crimes are happening, go to any elite college Thursday through Monday. You can find them. There are students hanging out of the um, hanging out of the fraternity houses. They're on the streets. You know where to find them. And we know colleges talk about the underage drinking, the marijuana smoking. And I'm not saying that marijuana should be criminalized. I'm, I'm here to making this point about where police decide to right. police. Right. Um, the use of opi opioids, illegal use of opioids, right? Uh, heroin, all of these things, cocaine, any number, you, you name the drugs. Most of them, many of them, could be found on college campuses over the weekend. We never hear stories about, oh, the police raid at the University of fill-in-the-blank. Right, right. Never. But if it's police like did pharmacy, want to find yeah. crime, they'd almost be certain if they drove onto Yale's campus Stanford's campus, the UCI, University of Chicago, you name them, and they would be able to find the underage drinking, they'd be able to find the illicit use of drugs, and they'd probably also find some sexual assault taking place, too. And yeah. so, so the difference between New Haven's community and Yale College is right. just simply where police decide that they're going to drive down the streets and then find the crime. And it's an important point because otherwise what people presume is that, well, people in college just don't use drugs. They just don't commit crimes. We know that that is not true. And so it leaves this racialized impression that, boy, just those troubling kids of color, when in fact statistically we know the empirical evidence is quite strong, that the rate of drug use is about the same, black, white, Latino. It really, it really is. When we see the disparities in terms of arrest, charges, and then the sentencing, that's because other things are being triggered. It's not about the drugs. It's because that's how we've chosen to police. That's how we've chosen to prosecute. And we've done it in a way that really hurts our country. For example, in Los Angeles, it costs over $200,000 a year to jail a minor. Did you know that? Over no, I didn't know it was that high. I, I, was, I knew there was an average of around sixty to 80000 maybe. It's, it's but, but shocking. This, well, for a juvenile. It's, it's shocking how much it is. I was recently uh, at an event, a gun violence town hall meeting, in Los Angeles that I helped to coordinate, and the uh, vice 
uh, the vice president of the Los Angeles County School District mentioned this figure, and it was confirmed by someone in the audience that it's over 200000 Was there? And we have to understand that's basically salaries for other people who supervise. Right, right, but that's the expense. Was there a, a real audible, palpable reaction to that disclosure? Oh, yes. I mean, you could hear the gas of it, over 200000 And do you know what is spent per child in educating a child in L.A.? 12000 Just, yeah. Wow. So you have to say, does this make sense? I mean, basically, with what it is that we spend on juvenile incarceration or even mass incarceration, and two-thirds of the people who are imprisoned in the United States today are there for drug-related crimes. If you look at this just from the perspective of the kids, we could send these kids off to boarding school educations for the amount of money we spend. These kids could be, you know, having a, a type of life that, you know, that, Certainly the wealthy seem to deserve, but that really every American kid, I mean, you think about it, if we didn't police the way that we do, and we turned all that around, imagine the kind of education and environments that we could provide for all kids. But instead, we've chosen a very prurient way um, to police. And I think we ought to be really concerned as well about the privatization of those industries as well, because there are children, and here these aren't just black and Latino kids, we're talking about children of every type of American background that have been sent off to boot camps that make money off of the punishment of these children. And there have been instances of children um, being beaten, broken arms, broken legs. I mean, there are instances in Arizona with privatized boot camp kind of juvenile detentions where even former sheriff Arpaio has yeah. said this looks really awful and bad. He doesn't and it like takes it. a lot for Arpaio right, to right. say this looks pretty awful and bad. Well, we know that Attorney General Jeff Sessions has signaled and, and the, the, the White House cabinet has signaled an intense interest in reversing the downsizing of private penitentiaries. And so and we're seeing the stock value of the private the, the proprietors of the private institutions triple is what I actually heard that this morning. But I, I think we've got we've got a job for high tech titans who like to get involved in education for high tech libertarians. Peter Thiel, I'm just calling you out right now and that they couldn't get involved in the redistribution of that two hundred thousand dollars per per juvenile per year incarceration and boost the twelve thousand dollars per year for per student expenditures. Yes. No, that is very, very true. That's exactly um, what could uh, take place, right? We could really rethink the way in which we educate young people in our country and do better for everybody. This is really an opportunity. Right. Oh, it's huge. It's just, but getting our, uh, penetrating this very insular kind of agenda in the White House to improve particular stock values and that you know it's sort of somebody's talking about this this is a car the the american society is a car and the parts are being you know picked off you know bit by bit uh, as the the white house continues its business model there's no other way to look at it well for those of you who've just tuned in you're listening to ask leader on kuci 88 Point nine FM in Irvine. My guest is the inestimable 
Michelle Goodwin. She's a UCI law professor, and she's director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy, talking the health of our our nation. We're, we're going to dial it back there. And I wanted to uh, mention, too, that when Reza Aslan spoke about three weeks or so ago on the campus, he very earnestly, I mean, as a he was raised a Muslim, he converted to Catholicism, and then he returned to, to Islam. And he said, he, he was talking very plainly about the demographics. 1% of the country is Islamic. And he said, all of you have Islamic doctors. <laughs> that, was, that was just to soften the crowd a little bit. And it's true. Everybody, can, everyone, when I bring up that statistic, everybody's, yeah, I've got, and they name them all. But his larger point that I want to mention was he said that, folks, we are vulnerable to a kind of attack. It's not an Islamic type of attack. It is a right-wing fascist identifying person. And he sort of flipped the numbers from what might have been considered the, the common understanding. He said 80% of those who've been assaulted, it's been by a right-of-center, alt-right, fascist-identifying perpetrator. You want to tack in on that? Sure. You know, I've always taken quite seriously how uh, people can be impacted by the labels that we put out. And we know that there are people who might behave in ways that have incredible um, racial insensitivity, but who yet would be so deeply offended and wounded by being called racist. And, and I understand that and get that. And, and so now we're in this time where the linguistic that's being used is alt-right. But in reality, these are people who um, who support neo-Nazi uh, ideology, who support white supremacy ideology. Uh, this is what they write about. This is what they say in their posts and the articles that they write and whatnot. And I think it's really important that we identify these spaces for what it is that they, for, for what they are, right? Um, these individuals who espouse uh, this kind of thinking. Because what we've seen from the Dillon Roof to the murders of Indian Americans in their driveways and other places, uh, to what has happened in Portland, uh, to the torching um, in just the last year of black churches in the South. I mean, we could go across the country and just name these kinds of things. That's, that's white supremacy, right? Um, right. It's, it's a very dangerous type of uh, terrorism for our country, and we don't talk about it as such, but it is really important to recognize that for what it is, is right it is an ideology and a hatred that motivates people to target people because of their racial identities their religion and so forth um, and that is something that we ought to be seriously concerned about in our country particularly given its prevalence and its rise um, and it's almost inexplainable, except it is actually explicable. Well, and I'm going to throw in for people in case they're still not convinced that of the preponderance of this white supremacy culture or this sort of, a, I guess it's a kind of a thug sensibility, is we've got now representing the one congressional district in Montana, 
a Greg Gianforte who, even though he apologized, it was not not the kind of full throat type you would like. He after uh, for assaulting a reporter, somebody who was doing his job, and so that so this is sort of a real wink to all those people that like to chant "lock her up" and, and yeah. you know and aim really and point and shoot. Too. Yes what's happened to journalists, the attack on journalism. We ought to be really concerned about it. But here's also a space of, of hope that I think is important, too. Well, we need that. Oh, I think it's really important. Um, out of even the worst crowds, there are individuals. Yes. Well, first, I would say that, that these are not majority groups. These are, these are minority groups, these people who espouse these kinds of ideologies. Um, they can have influence, though, within the broader culture, and that's, that's something right. that we ought to be concerned about. And it's more likely that they'll be able to have influence within the broader culture when people have nothing to respond with. So right. children who are vulnerable to that kind of ideology are more likely to be the children who are deeply uneducated about the roots of our country. They're more likely to be vulnerable to the kind of historiography or, you know, the kind of ideology right. that's espoused, right? So that's why an education is actually very important in knowing what our roots happen to be. But I also am really inspired by the fact that we've always been a nation that has resisted these kinds of ideologies, too. Sometimes it's taken quite a while, but I think that we'd be remiss if we didn't appreciate that there were people who really fought, fought very hard, people with privilege, who fought against institutions of slavery, that there were people during Jim, Jim Crow. I mean, I think it says so much. You think about right. the parents of Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner, yes. these three young men who were murdered as they, were, they went down to Mississippi to try to help people vote. Cheney was already from the South, but whose parents said, we support this. We know how dangerous this can be, but we care about our country. We care about people being able to have a right to vote. There have been many incredible Americans who have stood up for the best that our country is about. And those folks still want to and are standing up for the best of what our nation is about. We would do much better by the legacy of that if we were to acknowledge it and be able to see it. But again, that takes people being educated about it. So that they know, and I think that inspiration can be drawn from those very important uh, lessons, much like in an interesting way, but different, for Hidden Figures, that film, it comes to mind. And how it comes to mind is when I saw that film, there were parents who were taking their daughters. And these were white parents taking their daughters, black parents, so forth. It's a great story about America and what an inspirational story it is for boys and girls, but in particular to see that moment and how it's understood for girls. There's a way that we can all embrace the broad group of Americans who who stood up to injustice and who stood for the best of what our nation is about. Amen for that. (laughs) Well, I I guess I want to call out the media. Sometimes my journalist friends really just chafe at my suggestion of a a less than honorable sort of, of taking up these the professional standard but the case in which last week the LA Times brought uh, that told this whole story in it, it, we're talking there's a split 
green, I guess we could call it. There's this whole story about this guy jumps in his DeLorean car. You know, folks, that's a high speed number, high performance number. And with his mom and they top off at 88 miles per hour in L.A. I don't know exactly what strip of highway. I think maybe in San Fernando Valley or something like that. And so the the problem with this is the split screen is there uh, there is an African American couple that in a different story and they are I guess they're not arousable and they were they were both shot with a number of rounds uh, and they were killed by police. But so I mean that that was it. That was it. Finished for them. That was not a n- nothing mediated there at all with their encounter with the police. But the L.A. Times article went on and on about this DeLorean driver. He got a $400 ticket. He had a lot of chuckles with the law officer. And, and then he went. He said, well, I'll pay my 400 And was all chuckles. And I thought, what an obscenity, that split screen. Well, Claudia, you know, I, I so enjoy the opportunity to speak with you and to your audience. So you're raising a question about who happens to occupy positions of power, too. So our media is a very powerful institution, and our media uh, have the opportunity to hire journalists and to hire editors, and editors get to determine then what stories their journalist will go about and pursue. And so it really helps having a, an appreciation if not the diversity itself, and really the diversity in those spaces. But they're overwhelmingly male, and they're overwhelmingly white male. Now, I don't want an audience to say, well, look, she's beating up on white men. Not at all. But I am saying it then influences what stories, what one hears and says, oh, is that a good story? Here's an example. I think that many Americans think that Trayvon Martin's story was an important story. Most people would agree that, yep, something to think about. It took months. Right. For Trayvon Martin's parents to get journalists to write about it. So when most Americans think about, oh, Trayvon Martin died, no, he had died months before that. His parents couldn't get journalists to take it seriously and write a story about this. So your point is very well taken in terms of, you know, what is it that we see as valuable and worthy to be covered? How exactly is it covered? Is it covered with thoughtfulness? Uh, Is it covered in an empirically robust way? Uh, Is it covered in such a way where it engages the multiple stakeholders and witnesses to a particular story and their opinions? And and we're not doing a great job of that. Um, I can certainly see that on the reproductive rights Right. I mean, there's so many stories that oh, I that's would a think whole nother show, really deserve Michelle to Goodwin. be written about what's happening in women's lives. Right. That's and another show I want to do with you. So we'll <laughs> we can, we'll have to come back yes, to that one. Please, please. So that's for people to to keep in mind when they're looking at that. There's there's choices that are always being made, and it's I mean the layout, the 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 column inches, the the photos. I mean, the, there were so many aspects of that, and it it it, it actually I was just livid when I. When I, it all sunk in, I thought, what, were, what are they thinking? So I, I want to start to close this remarkable time with you to reflect on 
Juneteenth. It's yeah. an annual commemoration, and there will be an opportunity for anybody who's listening now is going to, or will hear this podcast later, uh, askaleader.com, you can catch it, that you can take part and begin conversations resume education about what we're talking today, the Juneteenth commemoration in Orange County on June 17th. So what do you want to say, Professor Goodwin, about the Juneteenth commemoration, where it started, and what is the most someone could get out of interacting over this? Well, yeah, you know, I think that Juneteenth connects with what we were just talking about. So um, at the end of slavery, there were still communities um, where individuals were not aware that slavery was over, um, and it was um, perhaps certainly not in the interest of slaveholders to let their slaves know that slavery is over. And Juneteenth helps to recognize that realization of slavery's abolition, basically, is part of that narrative. And it's been, over time in the United States, uh, a celebration of that. And what's interesting is that, you know, it's something that um, African-American communities have stitched together and held together, but it's actually not something that's been formally, you know, recognized by our federal government. And, and that is interesting, right? Because you'd think, in a way, right, that there would be a day where we'd say, wow, that was over. We'll never go back to that. We recognize and honor that we put a stop to that awful, heinous practice. And we've not done that. And so this Juneteenth celebrations have been a very much localized in local communities um, in cities across the country where people come together and they have that kind of uh, celebration. Um, so that's what it is. And it, I want to give everybody a chance to... Uh, plan ahead. It'll be on June 17th, and it will be, it's going to be at the Huntington Beach Central Library Facility, folks. That's at the Golden West location, of the, the main library, and it will be put on by a number of local organizations. So it's a, a way for people to get familiar with who's involved actively, culturally, historically here in Orange County. And that would also give you, um, you know, a chance to sort of show your support for wanting to move the needle on this identity politics that ails us to this very moment. The plans are on June 17th, it's a Saturday. It'll The program starts at 10 and it'll end at four o'clock. I will be there and I will be looking around to see who was listening to Michelle Goodwin today and uh, what, what I can do, because I've got so much learning ahead. I'm the first one to admit it. I've been, I've been sailing on privilege for longer than I want to admit, and for that, I take complete ownership, and I'm working my hardest at make atoning for how witlessly I have skated on that privilege. Claudia, the reality is that we have all been privileged we have all been privileged by what has come before us, and that is, and that is true. I mean, even uh, in the space of the suffering that takes place today, when I think about it, I have um, grandparents, my maternal grandparents were yes. from Mississippi. Okay. I am privileged. Uh, you know, and, and so we, we all come from spaces of privilege, and we've all been privileged by the very hard work and tenacity um, and folks who endured 
in ways that are just completely unimaginable, right? I mean, it's, it's really just unimaginable and heartbreaking to think about two-year-olds in the field having to pick cotton, and yes. not because they're hap- helping their family do this on the farm, but their failure to do so could end up with severe repercussions and beatings, right? Like this, to, to know that that was a reality in our country is to make us all uh, take a pause and reflect about how incredibly privileged we are, but also about how much collective work we have ahead together and the fact that we can do this. Um, We can do this work and we need to remind ourselves that we can be responsible for a much better future for us all. Let us take pause. Let us reflect. That's all the time that we have. Michelle Goodwin, I'm so grateful for the time you've given us today. Thank you. Thank you. That was Michelle Goodwin. She is UCI law professor, extraordinaire, available for commentary in so many places around our Southland. We're going to uh, wrap now today. Next week on the show, we're going to hear from UCI professor Danielle Piumelli, who's on the cutting edge of research and institution building around the California statewide approval of the legalization of cannabis, Prop 64. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.